We just got back from New Orleans and we spent a little time on the road after New Orleans, just checking out the general area. I have never been to Mobile, Alabama. I haven't been to Pensacola in a long time. Boy, the Gulf of Mexico is a nice place to hang out. Uh, some parts of America are really cool. Yeah, you know, it, uh, my better half and I, Kayla, we always talk about traveling. Oh, let's travel here. Let's go to, we want to go, you know, south of Spain. We want to check this. We're going to go to India. Check this up. We're like, man, the U.S. is so big and it's so beautiful in all corners of it. Like, you could spend a lifetime traveling around just these freaking 48 lower states even and not see it all. Uh, that was amazing. And we did enjoy New Orleans quite a bit. We had some really good food. And in fact, Joel, you're the one who took us to this really great restaurant. <laughs> I don't know if we would have found it otherwise, but we had a, a great time there. Hopefully everybody else is recovering from ACP 2023. There's going to be an offshore uh, wind conference in London in about a week from when this episode releases. That's going to be a huge deal. That, and that one's a, a, a big one. So these wind conferences are getting to be massive. And just like this week's episode, it, this is a massive episode because we have so much uh, good news about wind. Denmark has a massive tender for offshore wind. Like it's going to put America to shame. <laughs> this this thing is huge. And, and Rosemary and Joel talk about the implications uh, in Denmark and the surrounding uh, countries and also what it means for America uh, because there's just a lot of activity is happening in Europe on offshore wind. Then Suslan down in India has a new three megawatt machine and they are attracting orders right now and it's and they're turning a profit their stock is up really good things happening in india with suslan and Siemens Gamesa has announced a new four megawatt turbine for the u.s for some sort of u.s weather conditions and we're not sure what that is joel talks about what possible wind situations exist in the u.s that don't exist elsewhere but IRA bill is playing a lot into that Siemens Gamesa decision. Yeah, absolutely. And as we are always talking about what's going on in the new in the industry, we're going to be visiting one of the uh, oldest floating wind farms. There's a Scottish turbine up by Aberdeen that actually gets tow is being towed to Rotterdam for some repairs, um, which is kind of odd, but we'll, we'll jump into that one. And then also uh, Rosemary lends some 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 really good insights to a proposed U.S.-Canadian transmission corridor. So the, there's a plan that's kind of being played with right now up in the northeast corner of the United States to share with uh, share some wind energy back and forth with uh, Canada and the U.S. through some high voltage DC lines there. Uh, and then we'll jump back into the past a few weeks when uh, there was a, a ship carrying some grain up in the northern Europe that ran into a wind turbine out in the Go to Wind One uh, wind farm. And we're going to talk about that one coming back into service uh, very quickly. Uh, and then jumping over to Ireland, um, Alan has a difficult time <laughs> pronouncing the wind farm of the week this week, which is the Lachine 3 wind farm in Ireland. That was so smooth, Joel. I had such a hard time with that word. <laughs> uh, speaking of hard times, if you're having a hard time finding us on YouTube, which there's a lot of stuff happening on YouTube, there may be an easier platform for you, which is Twitter. So we're now offering the Uptime podcast and full episodes on Twitter. So you can pick us up there. And it has a nice little feature. Uh, there's a, Actually, there have been a lot of new features on Twitter lately. So we thought we'd give it a try. So check us out on Twitter. Just go to the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech uh, Twitter page and you'll see the episodes posted there. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. And I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and the Bill Nye of Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Up in Denmark, the Danish government and several of the political parties there have reached an agreement to establish uh, the framework for the largest offshore wind tender, tender in Danish history. Oh my gosh, Rosemary, this is unbelievable. Uh, the tender aims to develop nine gigawatts of offshore wind capacity with the potential to expand to 14 gigawatts or more. Holy smokes. Uh, the agreement includes provisions for Danish ownership of the offshore wind projects, making it the first time the Danes will be part of the ownership circle. So I guess our friends at Wind Power Lab may be getting a check in the mailbox when these wind farms come in. 
my friend Morton up there has, has some fishing money, right? More money for pumpkins and potato seeds for the summer. And rye bread sandwiches. There you go. Well, that, that okay, so this is a very interesting development because uh, basically the Danes have blown the doors off of everybody else in terms of offshore wind development. And including the United States. And when I read this article, it's like, wow, this is this is fantastic. Uh, the, the Danes are really going after offshore wind, and and obviously they have the technology and the, and the industry to go off and do this. But America is going to get <laughs> the cold shoulder uh, because we're developing much slower, and we're and we're not going to have the ships nearby. So the the Danes are going to pull all that uh, all the assets that are needed to do offshore wind are going to be sitting up there in the North Sea, and, and rightly so, I guess. Uh, but the second part of this, Joel, is payments to the citizens and to the state, uh, where in the United States, when we do offshore wind, there are the, the, the people along the shoreline get nothing besides a, a change in their scenery, of course. Uh, and I, I'm wondering if this is intended to sort of quell that a little bit of, yeah, we're going to develop all this wind, and you're going to participate in it. So when you participate, you tend to want to play along a little bit, particularly if it's a check in the mailbox. I would say so. I guess a couple of things around checking a mailbox for Danes is uh, I I feel bad for them from the, when we complain about paying taxes in the U.S. We're like, oh, our taxes are so high. Like, no, like they're, they're they, a lot of them are getting more than 50 percent taken out of their paychecks every every month. So or every two weeks. So if they get a couple bucks back, I'm 100% happy for them. But I did reading this, I know that they're going to do some work out on like Bonholm, which is an island of it's a Danish island. It's out east of the Danish mainland north of Germany. But Bonholm is a place where a lot of Danes will just run off for the summer and do their summer vacation and stuff. And it actually has like you wouldn't think this, but it's like north of Germany in the sea up there where it's kind of cold in between Sweden and Norway. But there's beautiful sandy beaches on Bonholm. So you, you know, getting that kind of payment and stuff uh, flowing for the citizens there might help a little bit. I've got a friend out there as well. Uh, his name's Bjorn. Um, and they, and actually Ace, our, our, um, our CTO over at Windpower Lab, he does some, he does some summertime over there. So they, that might be a little bit of a, you know, a, a carrot uh, per se in front of the uh, citizens there to get some things going. Rosemary, did you go surfboarding out in that in that area? No, I never went to Bonholm. I, I wanted to. Um, it's interesting place because, you know, if you ever say something like, oh, you can't go rock climbing in Denmark, then Danes will be like, yes, you can. You can go in Bonholm. But it's, um, it's much closer. Like geographically, it looks like it should be part of Sweden perhaps rather than, than Denmark. So it's a little bit of an anomaly. Um, but there's, there's plenty of nice um, beaches in, in Denmark um, in Jutland as well, so they're not they're not sure on that sort of thing, um, but yeah, Bonham is a is a cool Danish place that I never got to go, uh, but I think that this this wind farm is interesting because it's uh, it, it's huge compared to Denmark. Denmark only has about five million um, citizens, so uh, I think I just quickly googled, so it might be wrong, but I think that they're peak electricity load is only about five gigawatts so you know if they're adding 14 to that that's a lot they already export a ton of um, wind power and already get about you know half of their electricity from wind so you know they're used to that but I can see why since like it's clearly not for Danish consumption of course you need to um, you know uh, find some way for the Danish people to feel like they're benefiting from it. I, I think that most Danish people are a little bit, they still feel a little bit hard done by about the fact that Norway, um, you know, got all of the oil resources. Um, Denmark didn't. No, they, they literally talk about that quite often. So I think that like that, that's, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. That's what they say. Cousins. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I mentioned to my boss when I was at LM, I mentioned to him once that, you know, the Norwegian accent to me just sounds like people speaking Danish, but they're laughing. And he said, yeah, they're laughing all the way to the bank because they took our oil <laughs> <laughs> without missing a beat. I, I mean, in, in my understanding, this is the reason why Denmark is so far ahead on um, wind energy. It's because while everybody else else was, you know, pursuing all of their fossil fuel natural resources. Denmark didn't have any. And so they're pursuing their natural resource, which is which is wind. And it's, um, you know, that has put them in a good position for now. And it makes sense that they would exploit that to, you know, now this is their <laughs> their moment to, you know, have um, 
really rich natural resources and, and profit from it. If you want to see some funny conversations, get the Norwegians and Danes drinking together. And then when after three or four beers, when one when one of the Danes calls one of the Norwegians like little brother or something like that, and then you start, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're 100% correct. And that would make sense, Rosemary, then why the Danish government would want a piece of this, right? Because they're going to just export a lot of it. Right. So they'll sell it to Germany or sell it to the Swedes or Norwegians or or somewhere else. Right. So a lot of it will will get exported, which makes sense. Um, but I mean, like they've got the mothership there. Right. Orsted. So they've got some they've got some people that know how to develop. They've got all the port facilities all around the, the whole dang country, except for the what, 100 kilometer border with Denmark or with Germany. So they've got all the port facilities. They've got all kinds of vessels. They've got some of the best expertise in wind. Of course, the Danes are first in offshore wind. They've been doing it since the you know mid 80s. Yeah, it was early early nineties. Yeah, so they, they they it's this is it's fan, it's going to be great for the for the Danish community. And I think Alan, you are correct too that uh, if I was a vessel company and someone was saying, hey, do you want to come to the U.S. and work or do you want to just like go a couple hundred kilometers that way and work? Which one would you rather take? So we'll see how it develops, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, it's going to make the U.S. Um, offshore wind industry suffer. Um, and I think that this may be, you know, it's, a, it's really similar to what Europe is feeling about the IRA in general taking all of the, you know, battery manufacturing capabilities. And there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that um, that is, you know, the U.S. is really, you know, with that bold, bold, bold incentive, they are making the rest of the world feel like that about nearly every other part of the, the energy transition. So um, maybe this is the the right way to counter. And I guess it's good if, you know, a bit of specialization um, and hopefully some of the, the solutions and new ships that, um, you know, come into existence because of this plan. Hopefully they'll, you know, that expertise will make its way over to the US and, and help speed that too. Whoever is the high voltage DC cable salesperson in that region is going to make a killing. Don't you think that this this is the perfect place for HVDC? And I, isn't it Hitachi, one of the leaders in that? At least that's when I seen at some of the shows, I think it was Copenhagen where I saw that. But man, HVDC was going to be the way to go. If they're going to deliver power even down to the UK, that would make sense, right, Rosemary? Yeah, well, there's already a few um, cables in the region and some really interesting ones. So the world's longest subsea cable is between Norway and the UK. Um, so I guess that's not it's more the wind from the UK is, you know, going to Norway and then the hydro from Norway is going to the UK is kind of how that, that works. But usually the business model um, for the HVDC cables is an energy arbitrage. You know, you've got one price of electricity at one end of the cable and a different price at the other one. And when there's a big difference and there's a lot of money to be made by being the only one that can, you know, sell between those two regions. Um, I know that there's one cable it came online in 2022 it's called a lec link and it um it goes along the euro tunnel so connecting the uk to um to france and that paid for itself in about a year it took about a year for its revenue to to match yeah to match what um the cost was i don't have the figures right here but it, you know it cost something like 400 and something billion um no, million euros to build and then 600 and something million euros to construct it and then from like when it start came online in may or something 2022 and by the end of that year um it had made over 400 420 or something like that um and if you look at the <laughs> you look at the financial results it's kind of like they, they're hiding it they're hiding how well that that it did trying to you know like shift um costs uh from euro tunnel over onto that project because it's you know like it's just it's taking the piss a bit, isn't it? It's just, you know, that kind of a profit. It's brutal. Yeah, I think that that sort of um, financial result is one of the reasons why we see so many HVDC projects popping up around the world. But um, I'm actually making a video on this topic at the moment and I was speaking to somebody, um, an, an expert in this last night actually, and she mentioned that it seems like everything's happening at once, but really all these projects started 10 years ago trying to work out approvals and stuff, but you can't you know, really get started until you've got that final approval in place and everything has kind of happened at once. So it's a lot of stuff um, being squished up. 
but she mentioned that one of the really big um big constraints to all of these projects happening is that they aren't enough ships and there aren't big enough ships you know you've got to roll up a, a lot of cable onto a, a ship to get these really long distance cables in place um and the you know the, the ships simply don't exist to manage that much cable for the really long routes that are being planned um and so one of the big hvdc projects that is um you know in planning at the moment the one that links morocco to the uk is called xlinks um they one they don't think they're going to be able to source enough cable the amount of cable that they're going to need is more than europe makes so they're um they've started a cable manufacturing company um and two the ship that they would need to install it doesn't exist so they're building they started their shipbuilding company too it's just yeah it's it's crazy the little you know the little details uh the big the big problems actually i was at this insurance conference the other day and we were talking about uh, a lot of it was around cable claims so cable claims some of some cable claims in offshore wind are 30 million dollars for a, one claim there was an ongoing over the last few years an ongoing billion dollar claim in the north sea about cables and one of the jokes that someone said there was man someone would be smart to spend the 120 to 150 million dollars building their own cable lay vessel you'd probably pay it off in two or three years and i was like man that is a good idea if you could get the capital together and just this is all we're going to do. We're just going to go lay cable. That's all. That's it. And that would be I mean, there's opportunity there for someone. I won't be remotely surprised if the X-Links um, company ends up wildly successful, but never actually puts in their, their Morocco to the UK project. It won't surprise me at all if they just make a killing from their cable manufacturing facility and their shipbuilding facility. Yeah. And, and, the, and a vessel. Yeah. Can I ask a stupid question about substations? And maybe I'm just totally off here, but are there people permanently stationed or like, are there people inside the substations running those things? These big substations, particularly the DC ones? Who's, are there people on them? I would say there's got to be a couple people, but, but there's also a push for, have you seen like Annie, Annie Mall, a robot? No. Annie Mall was a dog looking robot before Boston robot, Boston Dynamics made one. And they're they're making the the push was to make unmanned platforms for oil and gas because it's so expensive to have people and move people back and forth here in helicopter helicopters and all this stuff right, and the people cost so much it was like well if we can we can spend a hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a robot and that robot can run the platform, you know that's that's six months of a got person offshore. So it's gonna be run by robot dogs. Is that where we're going? Wally or whatever R two D two out there. I assume that they they don't give it like dog intelligence though, right? They <laughs> they try and try and make human like intelligence to the to the robot. There's a super cool video uh, if if anybody that's listening wants to look at it. It's on YouTube and it's called Animal, like animal, but N A N Y M A L. And the it's got so it's got slam navigation in it, so it can navigate itself with simultaneous like location mapping with lidar and color imagery. But it also has uh, color cameras, thermal cameras, and it's like it's like like reading gauges, reading analog gauges, and giving feedback. And it's it's really it's a really cool like minute or two minute long video to to watch how this could happen in the future or is happening now. To be honest with you, moving on to India, Suslan Group, India's largest renewable energy solutions provider, as we all know and love, has secured another order for its three megawatt series wind turbine uh, from Serentika Renewables. Uh, the order includes installation of 68 wind turbines uh, with a rated capacity of 3 megawatts each for a uh, roughly 204 megawatt project. It's supposed to be commissioned in early 2024, and it marks the fifth order for Suslon's 3 megawatt series in less than a month. Man, they are killing it. <laughs> the salespeople down there are doing a great job. Uh, Suslon will supply the turbines and, and also uh, include erecting the, the turbines and doing the commissioning and providing uh, O&M, post-commissioning. And this is all part of India's transition goal of 500 gigawatts by 2030. Does that seem right? 500 gigawatts by 2030? Oh my gosh. That seems like a lot, guys. Uh, th that's that's a huge marketplace, right? Isn't it? L like, if, if I'm Suslon and I know I got 500 gigawatts of machines to produce, that is awesome. The Indian market is growing uh, big time. If you're if you're if you just kind of watch like in the weeds, like between the lines on like LinkedIn and stuff, you start to see. I mean, TP. There's a lot of factories down there too, right? But you can starting to see 
companies installing quite a bit. And it's because it's not just one region in India that is good with wind either. There's pockets all over the place. If you watch uh, Sozalon, they had an announcement on the Q4 uh, financials, and they had a really good quarter. They went year on year. Last year, they had lost a bunch of money. This year, they were profitable, not like hugely, but definitely profitable. And then looking forward, it's only up. And so the stock was up like 10% on the day, uh, which is remarkable, right? Because you haven't seen that out of a GE or a Vestas or uh, Intercon or somebody like that. It's been pretty flat there, positive, but not 10%. So someone's cranking the numbers and uh, Ceslon, the, all, all the company officials are saying great things about the company and its future. And that's good. India needed that. We need Ceslon to be one of those players in the, in the marketplace. So it's good to see them doing well. Meanwhile, Siemens Gamesa uh, has a new onshore wind turbine specifically designed for U.S. weather conditions. <laughs> and Joel, I, I never know what that means. Like, what is the deal with U.S. weather? Uh, maybe it's gusty? Is that what they're talking about? That's a crazy thing to say, because if you say U.S. weather conditions, it's not like we just talked about the Danes, right? It's not like Danish weather conditions where it's pretty much the same across the country. It's so different everywhere. You got turbulent, you got flat, you got desert, you got high altitude, you've got... Um, things in you know in the northeast up on the top peaks of hills and you got stuff in the plains where there isn't a hill for a hundred miles like it does that that statement is it's someone someone from marketing did not have the proper meeting with someone from the technical department when they said that my first thought was it has something something to do with lightning but maybe i have received a number of like uh phone calls and random emails from there asking about lightning protection. So maybe it's something to do with lightning. We'll see. Uh, so the, the obviously it has a rotor diameter of 164 meters, which is huge. And uh, they're going to assemble this new wind turbine. It's a 4.4 megawatt machine. They're going to assemble it in Kansas and in Iowa. So blades in Iowa and the cells in Kansas. So both those factories have been sort of mothballed recently. So they're going to open both of them up and make this 4.4 megawatt machine. Wow. And, and, uh, and th this is, a, I'm sure, driven by the IRA bell where they want American content. So Siemens can design a wind turbine specifically for the U.S. market. It's bigger than the typical GE wind turbine. Uh, bigger. And it's new, which everybody is going to be hesitant about. But it's built on shore so that there may be a, a market for it very quickly. And I, I just hearing rumblings, they are trying to sell this thing like crazy, that they're trying to reach out to a bunch of different operators about it. It's good, right? And we need to get a couple of different wind turbine factories going in the United States, and this is another one. Obviously, GE and LM are, are big in the United States. That's good. So we'll see what the 4.4 megawatt market has to say. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. The Kincardine Wind Turbine a site located 10 miles off of Aberdeen, Scotland, is uh, they're towing the turbines when they go in for scheduled maintenance all the way up to Rotterdam. Now, Joel, that's not like next door, right? That's a that's a little bit of a sale <laughs> to get to there. Mm -hmm. A cruise, if you will. Mm, cruise, yeah, I guess it could be called a cruise. Uh, so this is the second time that a wind turbine has been floated up to Rotterdam for repairs or maintenance. Uh, but this is causing a lot of consternation within Scotland because uh, they're, they're, Scotland and the UK is like wondering, like, well, why can't we just fix it where it is? We have capability. Why are, why are we dragging these turbines up to Rotterdam to get them? Getting fixed, so there's a, a big push to keep every, all everything locally, and basically, uh, it sounds like they're not going to drag the wind turbines to Rotterdam anymore. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna stop all that, and they're gonna uh, keep the wind turbine repair stuff locally. Now, so this has consequences, I think, for the United States and other places where the intent was, and you see a lot of proposals like this, when a wind turbine would go in for routine maintenance, they would just drag it off the grid, take it to wherever it's going to get repaired, and drag and, and basically bring another turbine in its place, right? So you always have like a couple of spare turbines sitting in dock somewhere and do this the swap. 
But country to country, I don't think that's going to play very well, right? And we're already seeing this problem. There's something going on here that we don't know about because when someone says scheduled maintenance, why would you need why would you need to tow that into port for scheduled maintenance? To towing to port in my mind is is MCE work, right? It's major component exchange. It's a new generator, new blades, new new something. Scheduled maintenance is is the basic stuff that should be dropping someone on a transition piece or dropping someone on the floating platform and having them run up and, and get done what they got to get done. Um, that, that, that side of the things don't really, doesn't really make sense to me, but, um, you know, I've, I've been to Aberdeen quite a few times. And if this, this is just off the coast of Aberdeen, they've got great port facilities there, right? They've been running oil, oil and gas has been running out of Aberdeen for 40 years. Um, they don't have a lack of space at the dock. They don't have a lack of cranes. They've, they've got it all there. So there's got to be something else in the background here that we're not seeing because the, the, the cost to drag one of these also, so, so you, so people know as well, you don't tow something offshore with one tow boat when it's this big, you'd a lot of times tow it with three or at least two. So you'll have like a, a nose and two tails and it's to keep it square and moving. Now, when you're going a long distance, sometimes those boats just tag along, but you don't, it's it's not cheap. You're going to be burning th- thousands of tons of fuel to do this. So uh, there's, there's something here that doesn't make sense. Rosemary, is there more behind the scenes than we can see? Yeah, I mean, I can only speculate, but I mean, the King Cutting wind farm is one of the very first off- floating offshore wind farms, like maybe the third in the world. Um, and so I wonder if some of the, you know, scheduled maintenance is really checks, you know, like when I would put a new product out into the field, I'm definitely planning to go up and check on it, um, at least every year. And, you know, I would always try and get up more just to make sure that the assumptions that I made, are you know, playing out in the field, cause it's just so hard to actually, um, you know, you, you try and test as much as possible in the in the lab beforehand, um, in a test facility, but you can't, you can't properly recreate operational environments of a wind turbine. And especially when you're throwing, you know, all the offshore stuff into the mix as well, you've got weather conditions, you've got, um, the loads of the, the ocean, then, you know, you want to make sure that what you've designed is what's, what's actually happening. So I would wonder if it's something like that. So maybe they're bringing it back to the to the to the Netherlands, just it's because they can bring it into port where they built it and have a, the whole fleet of Dutch engineers crawling all over this thing to make sure that it's back to snuff. And it was more cost effective to do that than a lot of times you pick the first location for your prototype is not because it's a really great wind energy location it's because it's convenient for the whole team of engineers to be nearby and and checking it a lot and um you know repairing um little things as they happen uh so it might be that kind of situation i mean if if there were a lot of dutch engineers involved um then that would make it easy for them but then again i mean scotland's not so far to go right it's it's, it's a little strange. Maybe they didn't want to get away from the chocolate bars. They need to stay in the Netherlands. I don't know. It's tulip season. It's beautiful there right now. So maybe they just wanted to stay for that. Yeah, true. In the United States, there's a growing coalition of uh, offshore wind, green hydrogen, and transmission companies looking at a U.S.-Canadian transmission corridor offshore. Uh, the theory kind of goes like this. You'd have some offshore wind in Nova Scotia, some offshore wind in, up in Maine, and then you tie them together with a, basically a, a big DC, high-voltage DC cable, and you could share about two gigawatts with the power between the United States and Canada. That kind of exists right now because of Hydro-Quebec, and I think Hydro-Quebec provides power to the U.S. I think actually some of our power in Massachusetts actually comes from Canada at the moment. Uh, so this is not off the realm of possibility here, but doing something offshore is because we kind of get into sort of federal water territory and having, which is not well settled at the moment. But it does open the possibility, like in, in, like we were just talking about between Norway and the UK and a lot of interconnects that are going to happen in Europe. The United States really hasn't done that too much. Like there's no connector between Mexico and Texas. That doesn't exist. Or Mexico and anywhere. And it seems like if they're talking about making an offshore HVDC interconnect, 
up north, why wouldn't you do it down south? Why wouldn't you do it between California and um, Mexico? Why, why couldn't you do it there? It seems like that would make a lot of sense to connect the two where the winds may be strong. Uh, just, just a cable, right? And, and Rosemary, it does, does it, it makes sense financially to do that, right? Yeah. One thing I've noticed with the HVDC, there's, um, you know, on the one hand, there's all the engineering benefits. And then on the other hand, there's all the political headaches. And so I would guess that the reason why there isn't a link between Mexico and the US um, is because it, politically it's more challenging. Um, so, you, you know, the US and Canada are, are very close, very similar, a lot of trust there that, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the future, you're still going to be close and wanting to um, trade electricity and, and trust it. But yeah, when you've got, uh, you know, a interconnector that is a big part of your, you know, energy security, then you really want to trust that that two gigawatts isn't just going to get shut off because, you know, the Canadian prime minister is upset at the um, US president, right? That has happened before. Trudeau and Trump are not best friends. Oh, that's just true. You obviously can't, like if you're going between two countries that you can't guarantee that there aren't going to be differences, but um, especially, you know, we're like, we're talking decades of um, useful lifetime for these projects. So who knows what? what the global politics are going to look like in, you know, 2050, 2060. Um, but I, I think that the projects that you see actually coming online, the uh, interconnectors are all between very like-minded countries. So, you know, that two of those projects that um, I mentioned one of them before, the X-Links from Morocco to the UK, I would suggest that that's probably going to be their biggest problem, that they're not that similar, the um, the countries politically. And then in Australia, we've got plans um, to put a subsea cable from north of Australia up to Singapore via Indonesia. And both of those countries, you know, we have a lot of trade with those countries, but it's not the sort of place where you can guarantee that in, you know, in 50 years, everything's going to still be... Um, you know, smooth sailing. So uh, I, I think that that's a challenge. But they also um, circumvent other challenges because in the US you've got such trouble getting enough transmission in place, building new transmission, you know, on onshore, on land in the US is so hard. Um, and I do understand that there is um, legislation before Congress at the moment that's going to make it more similar to the way that they do it for gas pipelines now, which is a bit more more simple. So maybe that's about to be slightly simplified. Um, but, you know, if you instead of having to build transmission across the whole country and, you know, think about every single farmer's land that you're going to have to get permission from them or at least, you know, like worry about them stirring up community opposition to your project, it's... It's more expensive to put a subsea cable in, like obviously, like a, a lot more, but it might be faster, even though it's technically harder, the engineering is harder politically and, um, yeah, just in terms of community license, it, you know, um, fish aren't going to start any protests or, you know, like go to, go to parliament and, um, yeah, and bring a placard or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I think that it might actually be an easier way to get the security that you need because, I mean, the, we've got, you know, such big plans, big needs for the amount of clean energy that we've got to bring on. And if we can't be connecting different regions, then it's just going to make this the whole thing so hard because, you know, the good wind resources aren't where all the people live for one thing and for a second thing you need multiple different wind locations that are you know spaced far apart um so that you when it's not windy in one place it is windy in the other place so we just yeah we need this interconnection and um i think that the subsea cables are an alternative path if you can't get all of the onshore transmission built that you'd like to joel when you and i were down in new orleans one of the big discussion points was technicians and trying to get technicians and find technicians. And there's not enough technicians. And we talked to um, Alex Jones from Renewable and Dispatch about their app and and how many technicians there were in the United States right now. And it really isn't a good solid number for what we could tell, but it's around 10,000, right? Something like that. And we're going to need about 40,000 in the near future. So there's a huge deficit of wind technicians. Technicians tend to be on the younger end, you know, 20 to 25 years old, uh, the new ones are, and they tend to be male. 
And we also discussed how the Nebraska community college system, which is a very efficient and good system, is having difficulty finding students to study wind energy. And the whole thing was just bothering me. On, on the way home from New Orleans, I was just thinking about what is going on? Why are we having such a hard time? Well, I run a, kind of a, a couple of studies having to do about men in these younger age groups and sort of where they are mentally. And I thought, man, th- this is must be part of the issue. Uh, 40% of all men show depressive symptoms. Now, this is a study based out of UPenn, and, some, and it, it's a published study. I can send you the study here. But it's really, on the younger end, it's even worse. Uh, men aged 18 to 23 had the least optimism for their futures and the lowest levels of social support. 65% of men aged 18 to 23 say that, quote, no one really knows me well. Holy smokes. So if if you're looking for technicians, finding a technician who is, uh, you know, in good mental condition to go out to some remote location and operate by themselves or with a couple of people and do a job is going to be really hard to find. So one, basically one out of two technicians you may bring in is struggling mentally. I'm glad the study's there because I think it's a silent problem that doesn't get talked about very much. I know um, there's like, okay, so one of the large operators that I'm involved with all, or large ISPs I'm involved with all the time is GEV Wind Power. And GEV Wind Power has a back office platform called, it's made my Facebook, it's called um, Workplace. It's basically an internal, like an intranet Facebook type thing. And one of, one of the things they did uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago, it's really cool, is they, uh, they basically created an ambassador program within the company of mental health first aiders. And these people and these people got or tr- have training on you know seeing seeing the signs of someone in, in a depressed state or someone that's just having a tough time. They they've been trained to basically see these symptoms and reach out to these people to lend a helping hand, right? And it's some of the same stuff that we've talked about with Neil from TCGM like the brothers keeper type thing is, you know, is everybody needs to, to give each other a hand. But I think, so I've been doing a little bit of, this is funny that you bring this up because I've actually been doing quite a bit of research of this on, on the side myself. Uh, Cause it's an interesting phenomenon that I've been trying to, I've been talking through it with a couple of people in my network. And one of the things is this is the first generation of young people, not just young men, young people, young men and women to grow up completely immersed in social media. And, and, and what some of the research that's actually coming out is saying like when people are constantly looking through social media, they say all this, they have that, but I don't, they have that, but I don't, this person has this, but I don't, cause it's so visible and able to see all the time. So everybody's in, we're not everybody, but it's, it's, it's easier for people to slide into a, a depressive state when they're looking at oh, why is everybody else doing so well? But the reality of it is, is not that not everybody else is doing so well either. They're just living their Instagram life, trying to show the best of the best things, right? So it's actually, um, it's a, it's a, it's really a, a to, in my mind, it's a pandemic of, of de- depression in young people, but I don't, it's, it's not just men, men are there, they are affected by it. And, and you have this, this thing that's not catching up as well, right? There's still a classical thought around a lot of young men or men in general of you're tough, shut up, You'll get through it, figure it out. Like when I was a kid, my parents were always like, I'll give you something to cry about if you're going to cry. I didn't cry a lot, but I'm just saying that. See, they're, they're, but there I go again, right? With, with perpetuating that same, that, same, that same thing is men are still, they're still, I would say, and this is armchair stuff, right? I'm not an expert, but more um, susceptible or more, um, I don't know what the best, best term is, to, but push towards keep it in you'll figure it out things will get better and not get, and not being able to feel comfortable reaching out for that help yeah and I, I was looking for corresponding studies on women and i didn't see those same sort of numbers and rosemary being our uh representative of you know mostly younger women uh, on the podcast I, and, and you've been around wind a little bit and you've seen a lot of technicians kind of come and go i'm sure is the same sort of thing happening on on the female side of that equation on female technicians? It must be a different experience, I'm sure. But 
Yeah, I'm really sh- shocked at those numbers, especially because you said it was in the last two weeks. So it's, you know, it's a current current thing and that's definitely disturbing. I, I can't say that uh, I ever noticed any male technicians uh, having those problems. So I wouldn't really be able to compare to female. I hope that it's, um, y- you know, it's definitely not, I, I would really hope that it's not contributing to these kinds of problems. And maybe it's, you know, the type of job that, could be a bit of a solution. It, it is nice to work on something like renewable energy where it makes you feel a purpose. Um, I know that that's you know given me drive and energy throughout my career, um, and a lot of the young people that I talk to that are moving, like changing jobs to go into that industry, they do say you know like say an an electrician who's been you know wiring um rich people's renovations and then they've left the big city and gone to a wind turbine job in a smaller town they feel better about what they're doing with their time that you know it's contributing to solving the world's problems and um i know that a big issue with mental health for younger generations is um this you know negativity about the the future in terms of climate change and for me personally i used to feel that um until I started working on that in my career and now um, I feel much more positive. So I, I hope that it's a solution to some of these issues and not a problem. Let, let me throw out one more stat here. Uh, roughly 30% of men in these younger age groups has not interacted with another human for over a week outside the household. Does that make sense, Joel? I think it does, to be honest with you. COVID... Think about that, right? COVID, you're sitting and and every, and people if you and if you were a young so now it's different for us. I'm 36, so I had two years of my 36 years of isolation and things like this. If I was 18 right now, and the last two or three years of my life have been isolation, all I really know from my adult life is also isolation, right? So that's that's what's been hammered into you as a young person. That's all you've seen. Like you didn't go to school. You didn't. All you saw was your parents and maybe a, a, you know your grandma through the window or something like that. <laughs> like so so people like they they've just gotten so used to that that it's become and it's and add on top of that the the ad you know the the I don't say advent but the the surging capabilities of technology right cell phone again everybody has a cell phone or hand right look around a restaurant when you see young people they're just freaking they don't need to see their friends i'll, I'll give let me give you one more example before i move on i know some i know some kids that um, this isn't some kids this is many kids where they sit at home and they're on and they're on an ipad hanging out with their friends virtually when the friends live two blocks down the street and they could just walk outside and go down there and hang out right when i was a kid you got on your bike and you rode it into town to go see your buddy and you you met somewhere now they now with technology and everybody's got if wi-fi goes down in the house you're screwed it does lead to a big problem i think for operators isps if you're trying to recruit technicians that that age group is 18 to 25 males for the most part a large part of them are not there are not ready to go. And I think Rosemary is right. If you want to get out of that sort of doldrums, being outside, and Joel, you're saying the same thing, being outside really helps get rid of some of that that boredom, I think. And and having something productive to do would would really help in the mental state probably of a lot of men in that situation. It's just really shocking to see it. And I wonder how the larger companies, the OEMs, operators, ISPs are trying to deal with it. And they must be seeing it every day. And it's good to hear Rosemary's input on that too, because it's it's good to have a different perspective on it than, than Joel and me. And I don't know if there's an answer. It's just good to get it out there and to put some numbers to it. You know what institution probably has a ton of data on this and grabs people from all over the country is the U.S. military. I'd love to see what they have for data on it, but what we've also what we've talked to in the past for getting people into platforms, into school, into into the wind energy industries, ex-military people, man. I agree with you there. I, I just think we ought to highlight it. I'm not sure there's an answer. We're going. I know we're going to have Neil on from TCGM uh, in the near future, and I want to hear his thoughts on it. But it, it's something that needs to be discussed. 
definitely. And, and I, and I, you know, earlier in the segment, I mentioned to the, the listeners here as well, the mental health first aider thing. There's a lot of resources online. There's a lot of little quick little YouTube videos to watch. I'd encourage everybody to watch a YouTube video on it, take a little class on it. There's all kinds of resources online, uh, whether it's your partner, your friend, someone down the street, your your aunt, uncle, mom, dad, whatever. If you can recognize those things happening in someone else's life and, and reach out with a hand, that uh, the world is a better place. Get help. Get help. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. The Gota Wind 1 offshore wind farm in Germany has put its turbine back into service within 24 hours after it was hit by the cargo vessel. And if you remember, the Petrol ran into it and cut a huge gow and uh, cut a huge hole into its bow uh, from running into the wind turbine. And the thoughts about the ship itself were that it was on autopilot and people weren't watching and it just sort of ran into this wind turbine. Uh, the ship was lucky to make it to port. Now, I'm one shocked that the wind turbine could be turned back on within 24 hours. I'm not sure there is a checklist as to what you would verify after that. You put a level on the side of the tower and go, yep, it's not leaning. We're, we're good to go, guys. Or it's I, I don't even know, right? It's going to get rocked pretty hard. I'm not sure the components inside of the turbine are designed to take that kind of shock low, but maybe, maybe they are. Yeah, I mean, it depends on if... Uh, we, we've confirmed that that's a monopile, right? Not a jacket. Yeah, it's a monopile. So if it's a monopile, I mean, that thing's buried into the seafloor quite a ways. So... I mean, it's not going to shake around, right? Like you're either going to dent it, cr crush it, or bend it over. And if it hasn't crushed or bent or, I mean, 24 hours is, is a bit amazing to me because I think they would want to do at least some NDT, you know, some non-destructive testing work, some scans and stuff of some of the, like the impact area to make sure like nothing happened there. Like you didn't, because I, in my mind, I think of this, like you can, you can put a, I weigh 240 pounds. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a small fella you can stand i can stand on a on a beer can and it won't crush right i can stand in a beer can with one foot and it won't crush but if you if you if you just tap the side of it that beer can will crush in an instant right so my thought is is you need to make sure that structurally that that monopile where that thing was hit is good there because if there's one dink or ding in that cylindrical piece it's possible that that thing could just come down at some point in time, like a strong wind. Uh, I don't know, but I do know that they're built very robust. The engineers offshore always over-engineer things, but man, it, 24 hours is a bit quick for my liking. But I guess in, in the grand scheme of things, what does on and off mean? The rotor's spinning or the rotor's not? Like, that's not going to add that much, you know, like, structural issues into the turbine itself so like if it's going to come down it's going to come down might as well get some juice out of it speaking of beer cans i actually worked at alcoa for a summer where we made the aluminum for uh beer cans and every all the other cans used in food in the food world there's a lot of engineering behind aluminum cans in a beer can <laughs> there is there's different alloys for the different parts it's pretty strong it's designed to take a lot of load so i'm, I'm not shocked that it can hold you it probably hold a lot more weight but it, it's because it's well engineered it must be like this turbine it must be well engineered to handle this load exactly exactly <laughs> that like, alcoa place smelled like beer as you can well imagine we, we did a lot of recycling of beer cans there so when, if you even get close to the plant it had the smell of stale beer which is not very attractive you know you don't think to yourself yeah let's go back into that factory the next day uh but there were a lot of recycling of aluminum of course and and in the in this case of um a wind turbine getting walloped just like we had at alcoa we had a lot of structural engineers about how this this aluminum should be processed 
somebody on the tower side and the monopile side must have done an analysis on it, right? To say it's down, it's 30 meters into the, <laughs> into the earth or however far down it is. And as long as it doesn't have a huge dent in it, we're good, <laughs> right? That's the weak spot, Joel, right? If you, you take that aluminum can, you put a little dent in it, stand on it, it's going to crush. Must be the same sort of analysis going on. Oh, I mean, so we, there's some simple math we can do here too. Like, well, how big was that vessel? That vessel was had to be. Uh... It was full of grain, right? So it was heavy. Yeah. It's, it's, is it a thousand tons? Oh yeah. If it's a thousand tons and it's cruising at, it's on autopilot, so maybe it's going. I don't know, eight knots. Eight, ten knots. Yeah, probably. Yeah. That's an impact. One half mv squared. <laughs> yeah, we got to get rosemary back. What are we doing? That's a that's a lot of impact. That's a lot of force, right? I know it didn't hit it head on. It was a glancing blow, but either way, I mean, because the way that that, mo that it's monopile, and then there's basically a like a key on top of the monopile, right? And then the transmission transition piece is set on top of that, and then the tower is set on top of that. And but it had to have hit the tower, and maybe it maybe it didn't hit the transition piece and just hit the tower. And if the ship wasn't high enough to mess up the trans, because the transmission piece, if you hit that with a boat, that's walk gangways and walkways and railings and stairs. And so it had to have just hit the tower and be low enough draft when it was, it was full. So if it was low enough draft, it just glanced off the tower, but it ripped the freaking hull open on the ship. I don't either way. This, this, this is a mess, right? These, these guys. Yeah. They didn't report that the ship had run into the wind turbine and they just kind of got off. The, they parked the boat on, on shore at the dock and just walked away it sounded like they didn't tell anybody that it happened did they know that the, there was an ais system tracking them like oh is it their first day on the boat like they thought they're going to get away with it i don't know well that's a, that's a really good question right i had a, i had that thought that if you're tracking ships and you know where these wind turbines are do you, is there an alert that goes out somewhere to vestas or siemens whoever's turbines they are like hey there's a ship within like 100 yards of your turbine right now uh, you know, we need to check it. You need to check it, just like with the lightning sensors. Like now, like there's been a lightning strike within a hundred feet of your wind turbine. You probably ought to go out and check it. Is there a similar thing for ships and uh, monopiles? Someone in either whoever it is, Orsted, whatever, someone in their remote operations center definitely has a screen with all the vessels that are in the within the wind farm on AIS for sure 100 percent can you imagine sitting there watching that happen live like I can I can do that on a Raspberry Pi and the TV in your house in an afternoon I'm sure Orsted's got it Wow that would have to be really nerve-wracking right and, and maybe that's why maybe that's why the ship got reported so fast is that they knew that it happened somebody knew that it happened and reported it to the authorities so when they showed up on at the dock they knew the german authorities knew what to go do that must have happened yeah wow 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 let's just hope this doesn't happen anymore but it feels like it will it's terrible orsted has opened a new wind farm in ireland through a corporate power purchase agreement with meta uh, so your favorite facebook company is buying power from wind energy again, which is good, right? Uh, the Lachine 3 wind farm has a capacity of 28 megawatts and is located in County Kilkenny, which is in its adjacent to Lachine 1 and 2 wind farms. The, the combined three Lachine farms have a capacity to generate 89 megawatts of green energy, making it uh, Orsid's largest wind farm in Ireland. Hot dog. Uh, so all that energy is actually going to be dumped to the grid and, and Meta is buying the energy in sort of in theory um, as green energy. So this is good, right? So Orsted is building partnerships with larger companies like Meta uh, to offload the energy and to fight off global warming. So our wind farm of the week is the Lachine 3 wind farm in Ireland. Congratulations to Lachine 3 and Orsted. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.